Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. There's no single diagnosis where I see such a huge practice variation than in the management of spontaneous pneumothorax. Even the definition of what a large tube in the chest worthy pneumothorax is, is different depending on where you practice. Management options for small and large spontaneous pneumothorax are all over the place. Observation alone, pigtail catheter hooked up to a Heimlich valve, needle aspiration, large bore chest tube, underwater seal or suction. What's the best approach? This is an important question because if you work in a busy ED like where I work, your ED is likely to see about one to two cases per month. So, Let's sort out the best approach to the management of spontaneous pneumothorax with two new voices to EM cases, Dr. Gil Yehudef, my EM colleague from North York General, who knows probably more about spontaneous pneumothorax management than any EM doc I know, and thoracic surgeon Dr. Mehdi Tahiri from McGill University in Montreal. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Anton. Let's jump into a quick case. An otherwise healthy, tall, skinny, 21-year-old male, five-pack year smoker presents to your ED with mild, non-radiating, sharp, left-sided chest pain and shortness of breath. His symptoms started a day prior after having a laughing fit. He denies fever, cough, hemoptysis, calf or ankle swelling, PND, and orthopnea. On exam, his vitals are normal. Chest auscultation reveals decreased air entry to the left lung, and the rest of his cardioresp exam is pretty much normal. On chest x-ray, he's got a, you guessed it, pneumothorax. It's four centimeters from the apex with no midline shift. Okay, so the diagnosis of pneumothorax is pretty straightforward, and we're going to be talking almost entirely about management of pneumothorax on this podcast. But we need to clear up a couple of things about imaging first. Now, all the guidelines use chest x-ray to guide management, But we all know that CT is more accurate and picks up those tiny little pneumothoraces that have pretty much zero clinical significance. And some of us are keen on POCUS, which has its advantages too. So Dr. Yehuda, first, how accurate is POCUS for pneumothorax? And when would you suggest using it in the ED for the diagnosis of of pneumothorax? So point-of-care ultrasound is an excellent test for picking up pneumothorax at the bedside. It has 90.9% sensitivity, 98.2% specificity. And when you compare that to the supine chest x-ray, which is only 50.2% sensitive, you can understand why it's so practical and useful in the trauma bay especially, and why it's really become part of our EFAST protocol. However, when it comes to the management of spontaneous pneumothorax, really what we want to do is quantify the size of the pneumothorax. And so there's an interesting paper that I came across uh, out of Italy in 2014. And what they tried to do is find out if you could quantify the size of a pneumothorax using the transition point or the lung point. Um, What they did in their protocol was they essentially scanned the lung starting from the sternum and then moving laterally until the posterior axillary line. And what they found is with their test characteristics, 
a pretty reasonable sensitivity and specificity at picking up the small pneumothoraces if that lung point was more anterior to the posterior axillary line. And still reasonable test characteristics for finding large pneumothoraces if the lung point was in the posterior axillary line or further posteriorly. While I find this interesting, I think we're still going to be sticking with our chest x-ray for diagnosing or quantifying the size of the pneumothorax because this is the definition that's used in our guidelines. This is the language that we're going to be using when we speak with our colleagues or our consultants. And this is also what we used to follow up with patients. I think more studies are needed for the use of uh, ultrasound in pneumothorax, but I'm, all, I'm always open to advance uh, uh, new techniques. And I believe ultrasound is definitely an excellent tool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see how, where it's going to lead us. And I'm encouraging Dr. Yudaev to continue uh, pushing on the use of ultrasound for uh, pneumothorax. All right, great. You had mentioned uh, trauma. We know that in the trauma patient who's lying supine, that the chest x-ray only has about a 50% sensitivity for pneumothorax. So, you know, I think it's worth noting here that POCUS is probably a better option in the trauma patient, even though you, ha- you might have an x-ray machine right in your trauma bay. The POCUS, if you're good at it, then it might be a better to rely on the POCUS than it is to rely on your chest x-ray in the supine patient, which only has about a 50% sensitivity. And of course, this is only true if you can upload your images to your computer system. I suspect the 50% sensitivity for the patient supine, I, I suspect probably for a smaller, maybe moderate pneumothorax. And is there an urgency to put a chest tube like this? Can't we wait for the patient to be upright chest x-ray? Just an interesting kind of anecdote that there are some studies looking at trying to quantify the size based on ultrasound. But I think in most cases, if we're diagnosing a pneumothorax with our lung ultrasound, it's just triggering a chest x-ray next. Absolutely. One other question on imaging before we dig into management, and it has to do with the expiratory view. We used to order an expiratory view routinely on suspected pneumothorax. Uh, Dr. Tahiri, is there any benefit to the expiratory x-ray view? You know, should we be ordering them routinely or are they just a waste of time and sort of needless radiation? I personally believe that they're not needed. I don't think they will change management that much. I never relied on that. Okay. And Dr. Yehudif, based on the guidelines, do they talk about expiratory view or is it all just based on your regular AP view? Yeah, so the guidelines actually, uh, almost all of them are in agreement on that. Uh, the expiratory view ex- chest x-ray is not necessary, and most of them recommend against getting it routinely. Great. Okay. Well, that was easy. Excellent. <laughs> all right. So our management will be guided by the size of the pneumothorax, and we'll delve into that soon. Size is important. The problem is that how we define a small pneumothorax from a large one depends on who you ask. For the purposes of what we need to know and do in the ED, Dr. Yehudef, how do you suggest we differentiate between a small pneumothorax and a large pneumothorax? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. There are several different acceptable definitions. Um, the American College of Chest Physicians use the definition of apex to cupola of three centimeters or greater, or the British Thoracic Society use a different definition. They look at the interpleural distance uh, at the level of the hilum, so the distance between the parietal pleura and the chest wall, and they consider two centimeters or more uh, as being a large pneumothorax. The Belgian definition is even more conservative, and they consider large as complete dehiscence of the 
uh, along the lateral chest wall. Um, then there's some other, you know, slightly more uh, nuanced or more calculative approaches. There's the light index, which maybe would be best to include a picture in the show notes, looking at greater than 20% size of pneumothorax is large. And then there's Collins method, which is something I think some people become more, I guess, uh, aware of. And it uses three different measurements, looking at the interpleural distance at the bottom third along the lateral border, the top third, and then the apex to capola. And then if you add up those three measurements as greater than six centimeters, you get an estimated size of greater than 32% pneumothorax, which is then considered moderate to large. All right. We'll have pictures of that in the show notes. So bottom line is there's various ways of measuring large versus small pneumothorax. And really, uh, would you suggest deciding on one and sticking to it? That would be my best recommendation. All right. So let's say, as in our case of the tall, skinny, young smoker who has a pneumothorax four centimeters from the apex, so that would be defined as a large pneumothorax as per the American guidelines, which are you know defined as more than three centimeters from the apex. What do the various guidelines say about the best management options for a large spontaneous pneumothorax? I understand there's disagreement between them and that they're largely based on expert opinion, right? Yeah, so this is where it all gets confusing. I mean, if you look at the American, the North American guidelines, so the chest guidelines in 2001, um, first of all, it's a completely expert opinion-based guideline, but they essentially suggest that all large pneumothorax be treated with a pigtail catheter. Whereas the British Thoracic Society, they published their guidelines in 2010, they basically say if you have a large pneumothorax in an otherwise stable patient, consider conservative management. Otherwise, if you're going to proceed with an interventional-based approach, Uh, they recommend starting with a needle aspiration, which is something almost unheard of in the North American culture. If that's failed, then they move on to pigtail catheter insertion and hospital admission. The Belgian Respiratory Society falls somewhere in the middle. They recommend starting with either needle aspiration or pigtail catheter. And then there's the European Respiratory Society who recommends a more conservative approach, more, more based on patient symptoms. They focus on patient symptoms. And so their statement, I'll read it to you, is in selected patients with minimal or no symptoms and good access to medical care in case of deterioration, observation alone may be appropriate. So as you can see, there's quite a bit of variability and differences between the North American guidelines and the European guidelines. All right, yeah, I want to get sort of a little bit deeper into, you know, what the best options are for different kinds of patients. The one thing you had mentioned was the needle aspiration that in Europe it's quite popular, but it's almost unheard of in North America. First, how do you do it and, and why would you do it? You grab a giant 50cc syringe and a three-way stopcock and you just okay. aspirate 50ccs at a time. I have to be honest, Anton, I never did a needle aspiration. We don't do it. And I'll explain you my rationale and that's purely my rationale. If I'm not too worried about the pneumothorax and uh, it's smallish, I would go with being conservative, not doing anything, observing, and we'll discuss about that. If I'm worried that basically the pneumotraxis continue to expand, that there is an air leak, that the hole on the lung was big enough, I would put a drain. Because I, w- I believe there is an air leak on the patient, meaning that there is still the hole. I find the needle aspiration for me, it will not give me the information about if there is a continuous air leak. For me, that's what's very important. Is there an air leak or not? It will uh, maybe allow the patient to, uh, for his pneumothorax to resolve faster, so a resolution of his symptoms. But it doesn't bring me that much information. 
So actually, so Dr. Huda, if you've, you've looked into this a little bit, you've looked into the literature on aspiration first versus chest tube first. So, you know, before we completely poo-poo the uh, needle aspiration as our first go-to, what, what does the literature say about if you compare aspiration first versus chest tube first? Great. So there are a number of studies that actually look to answer this question or look at this issue. There was two RCTs um, that were published at looking at this question. So there's a 2017 Norwegian study and a 2012 Dutch study. And what they essentially did was randomize patients with large single-sided pneumothoraces who were stable to either a needle aspiration first approach or a chest tube first approach. And they looked at seeing what was the success rate immediately of a needle aspiration. So success defined as expansion of the pneumothorax, whereas it was now considered less than 10% in size. And they found that with the first attempt, you achieved anywhere from 50 to 68% success. With a second attempt, you achieved 69% success versus a chest tube about 80.6% success. However, if you follow these patients one to two weeks out, the rates are actually equivalent. So in one to two weeks, both of them have equal success rates. The biggest take home was more so related to the secondary outcomes and that chest tubes are associated with more serious adverse events, things like pain, things like infection, bleeding. And then there's a trend towards an increased rate of recurrence of the pneumothorax at one year. So 12.9% one year recurrence rate with a chest tube versus 4% in the needle aspiration approach. So what's my bottom line? I think that needle aspiration, you know, is something to be discussed with your patient to have a shared decision made in this kind of uh, situation. It's only successful about two thirds of the time. It requires longer ED observation because after you perform the procedure, you're going to keep them around for another four to six hours. You want to repeat the chest x-ray. And at that point, you're going to see if they do have a persistent air leak, if there's a reaccumulation of the pneumothorax. However, there's lower adverse events, less pain associated with, you know, putting in the chest tube right up front. And then there's a trend towards lower recurrence rate. And we'll find that this is a theme that comes up again later. That's fascinating. I mean, there are some pretty good arguments there for needle aspiration. Let me ask you guys, you personally, the two of you, would you rather have needle aspiration first or a chest tube first if you had a spontaneous pneumothorax? I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say conservative approach. I don't want either. So if I can share a quick story, I, I did have a patient who came in with his second spontaneous pneumothorax. And he was just adamant that he did not want another chest tube to be put in, but it was quite a sizable pneumothorax and it had only been less than 12 hours. So we made a bit of a shared decision and we tried the needle aspiration. It's my first and only time attempting this. You know, it's actually quite simple to do. Finding the material was a bit difficult. I ended up using a a paracentesis angiocatheter because I couldn't find the proper angiocatheter. So not, not the ideal setup, but we had a 50cc syringe and a stopcock and I had a resident with me who just sat there for 10 minutes, just taking out 50cc's at a time. But basically you stop once you reach resistance. If you've reached two and a half liters of air, you can assume there's a persistent air leak, but typically you'll feel that resistance and it is actually quite easy to, to feel the resistance. Um, so this patient was quite happy. We t- took out the catheter, repeated his x-ray. He had very good re-expansion. Um, 24 hours later, it reaccumulated because he just had a massive air leak. So unfortunately, he did need a chest tube, but it was worthwhile trying it. And it was certainly what the patient preferred at the time. Great. Good story. So I guess the bottom line is that needle aspiration is not quite as effective as a small bore chest tube, but it's less invasive. There's less adverse events. So it might be worth a try in the patient who's like your patient, Dr. Yehuda, who's very reluctant to, ha- uh, to have a chest tube in the first place because more than half the time it does work just fine. 
All right, let's move on to the so-called conservative approach to large, stable, spontaneous pneumothorax. Why has there been this recent push towards a conservative, no chest tube management approach to even big, stable, spontaneous pneumothoraces? So I think we've kind of alluded to this already and that, you know, chest tubes are painful and our patients don't like chest tubes. If we go back a little bit in, you know, in looking at the history of chest tubes, they weren't really standard of care until the mid 1900s. And then somehow they were introduced based on expert opinion. And I certainly, you know, do agree there's a role for chest tubes without question. But there's this population we want to try to find that may be better suited for a conservative approach, um, even if they do have a large pneumothorax. And so up until recently, there wasn't any good studies convincing that that could be done. Um, but in January of 2020, there was a large randomized control trial published out of Australia and New Zealand that looked to find exactly this population. And you know, it was a very well-done study. It was a non-inferiority RCT, 316 patients, aged 14 to 50, unilateral, spontaneous pneumothorax. They used Collins' method to define it as, as moderate to large. Um, very important to notice that they excluded those aged greater than 50 because most of those are secondary spontaneous pneumothoraces. And then they took their population. All of them received the usual care that they would receive here, analgesia. If they were hypoxic, they would receive supplemental oxygen. And then they randomized them into two arms. And so you had your interventional group, which received you know, our, our classic pigtail catheter. It was connected to an underwater seal. They repeated the chest x-ray in one hour. And then if there was good lung re-expansion, at that point, they would actually check if there was an air leak. Um, and if there was not an air leak, they would clamp the tube and repeat the x-ray in four hours uh, with the hopes of removing the chest tube if there was no recurrence of the pneumothorax. And then you had your observational group or your conservative arm. And so they were observed for four hours in the emergency department. And as long as they were comfortable ambulating and there wasn't any significant worsening of their pneumothorax on repeat chest x-ray or certainly not associated with instability, then no chest tube was inserted and they were discharged home with excellent return instructions and excellent follow-up. And I think that's key. Now, certainly they allowed for crossover and you know, 15% did end up needing an interventional-based approach, but it's a very well-done study. So I think if we're going to go look at the results of the study, their primary outcome was what was the lung re-expansion rates at eight weeks? In the interventional group, it was 98.5% success of lung re-expansion versus 94.4% in the conservative group. So an absolute difference of 4.1%. However, remember this was a non-inferiority study and they pre-specified that if it was less than 9% difference, then they would meet their their criteria. And so they concluded that conservative approach is non-inferior to the interventional approach. It sounds like a conservative approach in terms of the primary outcome was was pretty good. What about the, the secondary outcomes? I understand there are some kind of surprises there in the secondary outcomes. Yeah, excellent. So the secondary outcomes in this study, first of all, were patient-oriented, which is you know something that's excellent and often overlooked. But what they found was that, interestingly, in the conservative approach, there was actually earlier time to complete resolution, 14 days versus 15 and a half, less days of work missed, so 6.4 versus 10.9, so that's five and a half days of work that they were able to attend. Patient satisfaction favored the conservative group. And then this is a theme that I kind of alluded to earlier, that pneumothorax recurrence at 12 months was higher in the chest tube group, so 16.8% versus 8.8% in the conservative managed group. That's an absolute risk reduction of 8%, or you can look at that as a number needed to harm of 12.5. Wow. So we all know that secondary outcomes really aren't at the top of our 
EBM list in terms of what's completely reliable. However, those are pretty surprising and and impressive secondary outcomes that, you know, if you believe them, that may actually make this a very convincing approach. Yeah, I would agree. You know, what concerned me when I looked at this study initially, or what I guess I'd worry about with the conservative arm is the adverse events. I think I'd be you know, pretty scared that a lot of these patients might come back with tension pneumothorax or become you know, unstable. Um, but interestingly, the adverse events were yet again higher in the interventional group. You know, chest tubes are associated again with pain, with bleeding, with infection. But there were actually a higher number of patients returning with tension pneumothorax because of kink tubes or displaced tubes. So it's certainly possible in, in the interventional group as well. So my bottom line from this paper is that you know, if we select our patients appropriately, some of them can be managed, conservative management with non-interventional based approaches. Uh, you know, chest tubes are painful. They're associated with high rates of recurrences um, and patients just don't like them. So if we have another option for them, I think it would be an excellent thing to consider. All right. You, you mentioned they're carefully selected. Could you just review for us again there what the inclusion criteria were? So we need to know exactly which patients are okay to do a, a conservative approach on. When we're talking about our carefully selected patients, we're talking about patients aged 14 to 50 years old with spontaneous unilateral pneumothorax. Their vital signs are stable. They're reliable. They're able to return um, should they have any complications. Okay, so there's pretty good evidence then for a conservative observation-only approach to the mildly symptomatic stable young patient with a large spontaneous pneumothorax. But I have to say that if I see a patient with a complete or near complete collapse of the lung, I'm going to put in a chest tube in whether or not they fulfill the criteria of the study you just mentioned. So Dr. Tahiri, I mean, does this literature apply to the complete or near complete spontaneous pneumothorax? Or, you know, should we be putting in chest tubes to all these patients that have like really big pneumothoraces? So I'll tell you a personal story. I'm relatively aggressive in the conservative management of pneumothorax. So when I was a fellow, I had this patient who had like 4.5, but with the lateral detachment of the pleura. And his story sounded like he had his pneumothorax like a few days ago. I sent him home with the repeat, come back with a repeat chest X-ray in the morning. And then I, I was a bit tired because I was on call for a week straight, no sleeping. And I'll say, I said, I said mm, did I just kill this guy? Is he going to die at home from attention uh, pneumothorax? I was very worried. So I called my one of my colleagues to have his input, etc. Everything went fine. He really took him a week for his pneumothorax to resolve through follow-up chest X-ray in the clinic. So I'm a proponent of conservative uh, management for certain uh, pneumothorax. But uh, for a total... Uh, complete pneumothorax? Definitely not. It's actually one of the surgical indications for actually a VATS uh, bolectomy. Though definitely I would not leave a patient like this without pigtail. So for a near complete uh, pneumothorax total, I would definitely put a, a pigtail, 100%. Usually they will have, most of the time this patient will have an early leak and they will stay in the hospital and often will need a, an operation. So Dr. Yehudif, let's go through your algorithm for management of spontaneous pneumothorax in patients under 50 years old. 
Let's start with the young, skinny, 10-pack-year smoker who comes in mildly short of breath on exertion with normal vitals and is found to have a small pneumo, say, two centimeters from the apex. How do you, how do you manage this kind of patient? So the nice thing in this scenario is I think all of the guidelines would agree with each other. For the small, stable pneumothorax, observe these patients in the ED for four hours, repeat the chest x-ray, make sure that it's not enlarging, that their vital signs are stable, and the vast majority of these patients can be discharged home with repeat chest x-ray in 24 to 72 hours. Certainly if it increases in size, however, at that point I would put in a chest tube because you know they have an air leak or a pigtail catheter. All right, you had mentioned 24 to 72 hours chest x-ray follow-up. There, there seems to be a lot of variability in how often the patient who's discharged with the pneumothorax needs a follow-up chest x-ray. Uh, Dr. Tahiri, how do you decide how often these patients should be followed up with imaging? In the emergency, I usually repeat an x-ray four to five hours after, and then I usually see them uh, in my clinic, and I see them uh, 24 hours after to make sure that uh, there is a stability or decrease of the pneumothorax. So the rationale being like, if after 24 hours, the, the pneumothorax has not increased in size, so if it's stable or decrease in size, it means to me it reflects that the patient doesn't have an ongoing air leak. And if it doesn't have an ongoing air leak, then I'm not worried that his pneumothorax is going to progress. After 24 hours, if the patient has a decreased uh, pneumothorax, and if you want to ensure that there is that there is complete resolution of a pneumothorax, it would be to repeat the chest restrain in one week. All right. So I guess the, the guidelines would say chest x-ray at 24 to 72 hours. Uh, Dr. Tahiri, you tend to do it at 24 hours. And then the guidelines would suggest at about one week and then maybe two weeks, even four weeks, eight weeks until complete resolution. Yeah. So I think the difference is, first of all, if we're talking about a patient with a chest tube, then then certainly that's a different algorithm. They're going to require daily chest x-rays. But for the patient without a chest tube, uh, I think I agree with Dr. Tahiri. If if you see that in 24 to 72 hours, you see stability, you could be assured that the air leak is essentially absent. But um, but I definitely want to repeat the x-rays until I see that there's at least improvement of the pneumothorax. Just to clarify there, when it comes to patient who you're doing a conservative pr- approach without a chest tube, you can repeat the chest x-ray in 24 to 72 hours. Um, and then again, if you want to ensure resolution um, at a week, but if they do have a chest tube in, they need Q24H repeat chest x-rays. So that's a young, stable, minimally symptomatic patient. Let's say the guy comes in young, mildly symptomatic, normal vitals, but this time you find a large pneumothorax, say four centimeters from the apex, like in the case we presented at the top of the podcast. We're going to go with probably a conservative approach with this one too. Is it any different than your approach with the person who say has a small two centimeter from the apex pneumothorax, Dr. Yehudev? Yeah. So truthfully, it's really not that that different. I think this is kind of harping on this conservative approach algorithm where size doesn't really matter. If the patient is minimally symptomatic, I'm going to observe them for four hours. I'm going to repeat their chest x-ray. And if there's no increase in their pneumothorax, in other words, I'm not worried about a persistent air leak and they're stable. I think you can discharge this patient home without patient follow-up and repeat chest x-ray in 24 to 72 hours. Um, The difference in these cases are 
there's probably a higher percentage of them that may in fact have a persistent air leak. And when you do observe them for four hours, you will find increase of their pneumothorax. And then in those cases, you're going to proceed with an interventional approach, and that's going to be a needle aspiration or a pigtail catheter. And I would probably advocate a pigtail catheter in that case. Before we dig deeper into how to manage the pigtail once it's put in, Dr. Tahiri, why not just put in a large bore chest tube like we might do, say, in like a big chest trauma case? Smaller pigtail achieve the same result than the large chest tube in terms of uh, helping in resolution of uh, the pneumothorax, particularly for primary spontaneous pneumothorax but it's associated with much less pain for the patient. Pictel is the way to go 100%. Let's now dig deeper into how to manage the pigtail once it's put in. A bit later in the podcast, we'll talk about tips and tricks of the actual procedure. Let's say you've decided to place a small bore chest tube, a pigtail catheter with a Heimlich valve for a patient with a large spontaneous pneumothorax. What are your next steps when it comes to re-imaging suction, et cetera. Let's start with the patient whose pneumothorax improves with the pigtail. So their lung is now re-expanded. What do you do with those patients, Dr. Yehudev? Excellent. So I think the next step is to check whether or not they do have a persistent air leak. So classically, you know, people have been connecting them to an underwater seal and looking for bubbling. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, but there's a bit of a, a hack that I think can be a lot simpler to do. But once you check for an air leak, if it's absent, you know, the the next question is, does this patient still need their chest tube? And so in those scenarios, what I'll do is I'll clamp the chest tube, or if you have the three-way stopcock, you just turn it to off, and then observe the patient for another four hours and repeat their chest x-ray. And if there is no recurrence of their pneumothorax, that chest tube is probably not adding a whole lot of value, and it can be removed prior to discharge. All right, so that's the patient with the pigtail who improves. What about the patient who you've just put in a pigtail in the ED, you repeat the chest x-ray an hour later, and there's no or minimal improvement? Uh, how do you manage that patient, Dr. Yehudev? Yeah, so those are patients that they need a little bit more help re-expanding their lungs. And so that's the patient you're going to attach the chest tube to an underwater seal with suction. And we'll set that suction at 20 centimeters of water. And then I'll repeat the chest x-ray an hour later to see if there's improvement. In my experience, I haven't really sent any of those patients home after that, so I'm already consulting my, my general surgery colleagues or thoracic surgery colleagues at that point for, for admission. Totally reasonable. So what about putting the patient on high FiO2 in terms of re-expansion of the lung? Dr. Tahiri, should we be putting these patients on an oxygen mask while they're being observed in the ED? Is there really any value in giving them a little bit of so I, I think for the patient, group of patients that we discussed earlier for who, who uh, we adopt conservative management uh, for the patient who are four hours in the emergency waiting for their uh, repeat chest x-ray where we believe that the air leak is resolved. I think it definitely, they are in there, they're waiting. I think it does bring values because uh, physiologically, like the basically you're washing off the N2, you increase the O2 in the pleural space, which is more absorbable. So it will increase the rapidity of the resolution of the pneumothorax. For those patients for whom conservative management is adopted and waiting for a chest x-ray for four hours, definitely, I think there is a, there is a reason to use oxygen. Great. Okay. And Dr. Tahiri, do you have any other clinical pearls when it comes to getting that lung to re-expand while they're waiting in the eMERGE? 
the more apical you're able to put your pigtail, the more chance you will have uh, you will have your lung uh, expanded. And to do that, basically, when you insert your needle and your wire, you try to angulate it so it goes apically. And when you insert your pigtail, you try to aim for the apex, but it's a, it can be a bit tricky, but uh, that's what allow you really to have a full uh, the lung to get to the apex. That's what helps a lot, I find. All right. And is there any truth in asking the patient to take a few big coughs to help re-expand the lung? A hundred percent. However, you need to be careful, and I wanted to talk about that uh, earlier. For a patient who had a total pneumothorax and you put a pigtail, I make them cough and then I clamp it for a few seconds and then unclamp it because there is a risk of uh, re-expansion pulmonary edema if you expand the lung very fast with a patient who had a total lung collapse and the patient can have severe pain. And I've seen a case of patient going in severe re-expansion pulmonary edema after insertion of a chest tube for a total pneumothorax. So when I'm with the trainee, I always tell them, let's remove a, a bit of air slowly because uh, re-expansion pulmonary edema is very painful, and you will see the patient will have be yelling a lot, sometimes after insertion of pigtail rather than the pigtail itself, and sometimes might require Lasix rare, but it does happen. It's not uh, impossible. It's a great point. Just to remind listeners that everything we've been talking about so far in this podcast refers to the patient with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax under the age of 50. So what we're suggesting so far does not apply to the patient with coexisting hemothorax or hydrothorax or an iatrogenic pneumothorax or a traumatic pneumothorax or, of course, attention pneumothorax. Dr. Tahiri, I understand that there's a long, long list of secondary causes of spontaneous pneumothorax. What are the common causes that you see in your practice that we should kind of know about in the eMERGE? So the big one is uh, COPD. And this is important uh, distinction because those patients, even with the two centimeter pneumothorax, have an in, in significant impact in their oxygenation. So those are patients where even with a smaller pneumothorax, you will have a tendency to put a pigtail because they really need their full expansion of their lung to breathe. And one of the growing cause of secondary pneumothorax is patient with some uh, infection related to uh, AIDS or HIV with the pneumocystis carini infection or mycotic infection who have secondary pneumothorax. And finally, also every uh, metastatic uh, lung disease or lung cancer with uh, some pneumothorax are common cause. And it's important really to separate those pneumothorax from the big topic we're talking about because their management is quite different. All right. That's what I'm going to call you, Dr. Tahiri. (laughs) (laughs) Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician to time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants... Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. So let's get into the nitty-gritty of the actual procedures. Inserting a pigtail catheter with a Heimlich valve, hooking up to the underwater seal, applying suction, and and removal of the pigtail catheter, which uh, has its nuances as well. 
Let's start with inserting the pigtail catheter. Uh, we'll have a video in the show notes uh, to make it crystal clear. But Dr. Yehudef, can you just run through for us kind of the step-by-step how to insert the pigtail catheter with some of the nuances of, of how you can avoid getting, getting hung up? Yeah, gladly. So I do certainly recommend that uh, anyone listening watch a video. It, it's a lot easier to see this on video. But I like to start with positioning my patient supine. And I know that some people like having their patients sit upright. It's preference. I'll get them to raise the affected arm over their head. Um, of course, we'll prep the skin with chlorhexidine. We'll drape appropriately. And this entire technique is going to be done with sterile gowning and mask and gloves. And then for most people, I imagine you guys are going to have some sort of Seldinger-style um, pigtail catheter kit. We use the Wayne pneumothorax kit. But before starting with the kit, I'll inject local lidocaine in my area. So I'm in a landmark in the mid-axillary line. I like to use the fourth intercostal space. Um, and then as I'm injecting my lidocaine, I'm making sure I'm going just above the rib. And once I enter the pleural space, I'll actually inject the rest of my lidocaine into the pleural space itself, essentially giving them a bit of a pleural space block. Once I'm going in with my needle and trying to enter the space, and I've entered the, into the pleural space, uh, the one thing that I, I do like to do is when I detach my syringe, you'll get that gust of air coming at you, especially if it's a large pneumothorax, as Dr. Tahiri alluded to earlier. I'll actually cover that up with my thumb. I've unfortunately had this, this one case as well with re-expansion pulmonary edema, and I also agree that it would be important to try to expand that lung slowly. So just buy yourself a little bit of time until you get your guide wire set up, and then once you insert the guide wire, you can, you can of course, you have to remove your thumb at that point. The next steps are very similar to all Seldinger-style procedures that we are very com- comfortable with and accustomed to. You want to make a nick in the skin. You want to dilate. And then when you're inserting your pigtail catheter, just make sure you have the three-way stopcock on first, and then you're going to insert your obturator and lock it in place. And that's just basically to straighten the tube out. Once you insert the pigtail catheter, after you insert it to that second line, at that point you want to pull the obturator out so that you're not pushing the pigtail catheter all the way into their mediastinum. Um, you're going to allow that the end of the, the tip of the catheter to curl, and then I'll insert it essentially until the third line. And then I do suture mine in place and, and appropriate dressing. Great. And uh, Dr. Tahiri, you've probably put in like a cabillion of these. Any uh, tips or tricks, pearls or pitfalls when it comes to inserting pigtail catheters? One thing I want to add is sometimes trainees where they have trouble is with the dilator. So you do need to use a, a, a fair amount of strength, like not to perforate any major structure, but it does require a, a bit of strength. And I think that's where trainees are experiencing the most uh, trouble with pigtail insertion is at the moment of the dilator step just before the pigtail. But one thing I would like to add is when patient, uh, rarely you will experience patient with very large body habitus and uh, where you would not have a good access in the mid-axillary line. Uh, those are ex- a very rare case, but in this context, I think it's important to know another technique where you can put uh, the pigtail anteriorly, mid-clavicular at the level or second of third intercostal space. But uh, if you've never done it before, I would recommend you call for help uh, and uh, some guidance, but it's uh, an alternative when you experience patient with a large body habitus. Okay, I guess the key concept there is that you really want to minimize the skin to pleura distance, which kind of might depend on the patient's body habitus. So just one other tip with the dilator, as Dr. Dahir alluded to, sometimes it can be quite tricky. I've seen Scott Weingart actually teach this uh, technique of 
kind of twisting once you're at the level of the fascia and pulling out and just doing this repeatedly and trying to break the fascia just by like a twist and pull kind of uh, method. Yeah, I've seen Scott's video, which we'll post with permission in the show notes. All right, so next up on our list of procedures is hooking up the catheter to an underwater seal and applying suction if need be. So this would be in the patient who doesn't re-expand on the first repeat chest X-ray after an hour or so. So Dr. Tahiri, can you just review for us how to hook up the catheter to the underwater seal and apply suction and some of the tips and tricks and pitfalls there? So it's important that uh, the three-way catheter is well understood by uh, the person who's connecting uh, the pigtail. I had a patient who uh, was referred to me from a general surgeon and he inserted a pigtail on the patient. He told me he will put an emlick and then the patient came to me in the clinic with the pigtail with the three-way close. Thankfully, there was no ongoing early. So it's important to know how to maneuver the three-way stock for the air to exit the patient chest. And then you, we usually have plurivac machine that we need to fill up with water. There is a little bottle of water. We fill up the plurivac where you will see, will provide you minus 20 uh, millimeter of uh, H2O. There is a connector between the pigtail that's coming in the set that you connect to the plurivac. For the plurivac, when you insert the water inside the plurivac, there is a colon of blue water that will appear. So it's white water that become color that become blue. And then when you connect to the pigtail, usually I go on my knees and I put my eyes at the level of the blue colon of water. And I ask the patient to cough and I, I look for bubbles. And bubbles mean there is air escaping. And if they cough three, four times and there's still bubbles coming out, it means that the patient has an ongoing air leak. Anything to add there, Dr. Yehuda? Just uh, all, all of these atrium uh, containers, essentially, when you take them out of the sterile packaging, they have a little bit of a swing out stand at the bottom. So it's helpful to use that if you want to sit it on the floor. Otherwise, you can hang it on the patient's bed as well. Um, and then as Dr. Tahiri mentioned, there's a sterile water that kind of comes attached to the package that you need to you need to drain. It's, I think, 45 mLs of water. Um, you need to drain it into the suction port. So there's a little cap on the suction port you need to remove and put the water inside. Um, and then if you're going to connect it to suction, that's the same port you're going to connect to the wall suction. Otherwise, you can just leave it to underwater seal. And then everything else Dr. Tahiri said is is exactly the way I understand it as well. Last in our procedures is removal of the chest tube. But before we do, we need to check for persistent air leak. Now, this is really important, and it's sometimes a neglected move. Dr. Tahiri, let's say you've got a young patient who comes back to the ED for a follow-up chest X-ray at 24 hours post-pigtail catheter. The chest X-ray shows re-expansion, and you decide to take the pigtail catheter out. You first need to check for an air leak because if there's an air leak, the lung will collapse again soon after you remove the catheter. Can you explain to our listeners what's happening when there's a persistent air leak and how you check for it in in the emergency department? Yep. So there is two situations where your listener will be facing off. The one situation where the patient has the pigtail connected to a hemlick valve or the situation where the the pigtail is connected to to a plurivac. So for the situation where the patient is connected to the plurivac, we look at the blue colon to assess for air leak. We make the patient cough. If there is bubbles, the patient has an air leak. If the blue colon swing, 
with no bubbles, that means the patient does not have an air leak. So at the, if there is no air leak at that time, it's, it's safe to remove the pigtail. For a patient who's managed outpatient with a hemolytic valve who comes to the clinic or the emergency department, so what we usually do is we uh, get a bowl with some sterile water, we insert the hemolytic valve inside that bowl, and basically we ask the patient to cough. And if there is an ongoing air leak, there will be bubbles coming out of the bowl of water. And basically an air leak, it just means that there, the hole that was present in the lung that created the pneumothorax is still ongoing. So it means that there is a, an acute issue too, and we cannot remove the pigtail. I love uh, the cultural difference in uh, Ontario. We use a cup of water, like we would have a cup of coffee. And in Quebec, you use a bowl of water, like you'd have a bowl of uh, cafe au lait or a cappuccino. <laughs> I think one's more elegant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So let's say you've checked for a persistent air leak by dunking the Heimlich valve into a cup or a bowl of water and asking the patient to cough and there's no bubbles. The patient's ready to have their pigtail catheter removed. How do you best go about actually removing the pigtail catheter? I've heard, I've read that, you know, they should exhale. Then I've heard they shouldn't exhale. But how do you go about that part? Dr. Yehudov? So interestingly, I came across a study comparing getting the patient to either hold their breath at end inspiration versus holding their breath at end expiration. And it turns out it probably doesn't matter. They're equal. Um, I tend to get my patients to exhale and then hold it, uh, and then at that point, uh, remove the pigtail valve. Either way, I do like to get a chest extra to confirm after I'm done that there hasn't been any uh, re-expansion of the lungs. Makes sense. And Dr. Tahiri, any uh, tricks about actually pulling the catheter? I think uh, Dr. Yudeif uh, make a good point by saying it probably doesn't matter for pigtail. For chest tube, it, it may matter a bit more because the space is a bit bigger. And I think it's better to exhalation, but the, the way we do, uh, I personally do it is I ask the patient to, to mm, which is a continuous expiration. The rationale is like when the, some people think that it's bigger in big inspiration to hold it, uh, but that's, I think it's not necessarily correct because the thoracic pressure in the pleura, the negative is that his negative thoracic pressure is at its maximal and the, the chance of air entry is, is higher. So I think the better is on exhalation or humming, which is sometimes easier for a patient. All right. The singers can hum. <laughs> the non-singers can uh, just tell them to exhale. All right. Let's talk about the causes of chest tube failure, because this we might run into occasionally. I'm sure you run into it a lot more, Dr. Tahiri, uh, in your practice. What are some of the common reasons that we need to be on the lookout for when the patient isn't improving, you know, that small bore chest tube, like the 14 French pigtail catheter fails. Like what, when do these things fail and what kind of things do we need to be on the lookout for? Blocks by bleeding. From the procedure, there is some blood, blood that catch the tube and there is a clot. I think the, the stop lock is a common mistake. I think, uh, like I said, just recently, like a month ago, I had a patient who had the stop lock in the, in, uh, in the wrong direction. And that's a big problem. All right. And Dr. Yehudev, any other pigtail catheter failure things we should look out for? More so kinking and dislodgement. I think sometimes patients, you know, they move around a lot if it's not secured properly. If, they, if they're lying on that side, sometimes the tube can get kinked or dislodged. So I'd be worried about that as well. 
All right. And any tricks about, uh, you know, if they do get kinked or dislodged, any, any tricks on preventing those things from happening? So I'll try to count. I mean, one thing would be to secure the tube in place. So, you know, some people don't like to suture their tubes in, and I do um, for that reason, make sure that the dressing is, is adequate. Um, but then also just reminding your patients not to lie on that side. And you want to make sure that the tubing is kind of taped to their skin as well. So it's not just free hanging. Yeah, I would 100% stitch all tubes uh, for sure. I think that's mandatory personally. Like, And I would usually use at least a silk zero. That would be the the go-to suture, at least in the emergency department. But uh, when we used to put the larger chest tube, we used to use like itty bone size two. But for sure, like stitch your tube because it, it's a pain for the patient if you have to re-put the tube because it got dislodged. Actually, now you talk about that, I've seen it, a uh, dislodgement, and usually it's because of, of using uh, short, uh, poor suturing, tiny sutures, small caliber. So for sure, use at least a silk zero to, to keep your tube in place, 100%. Good point. One of the reasons that patients hate chest tubes is because they hurt, as you had mentioned earlier in the podcast. How do you suggest we manage the pain associated with chest tubes? Excellent. So uh, one thing I do like to do is to do a plural block where you inject 10 to 20 cc's of, I like to use 0.25% bupivacaine, but directly into the chest tube, and then just let it sit in their plural space for a little bit of time before you reconnect it to either the Heimlich valve or the underwater seal or suction. And the idea is just getting the local anesthetic directly into the plural space. Alternatively, if you're someone who's more slick with uh, nerve blocks, a serratus anterior plane nerve block would be an excellent thing to do for your patient. Beautiful. All right, let's move on to disposition. Dr. Ehud, if my, my understanding is that the vast majority of patients in Europe with spontaneous pneumothorax actually get admitted to hospital, while in Canada, many get sent home. Who can be safely sent home according to the literature? Like, what, what is the evidence for safely sending home a patient? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. There really is a big practice variation between what we do in North America and what they do in the UK, for instance. In The Lancet last year, there was a study published out of the UK comparing patients managed with their standard care in the UK, which to remind everybody, that would be either an aspiration first approach or a chest tube with hospital admission versus patients who are managed with an ambulatory approach where they got an eight French pigtail catheter attached to a portable underwater device. And not surprisingly, they found that in ambulatory care, Less patients required hospitalization immediately after the procedure, so a median hospitalization of zero days. But even more surprisingly, only 15% required readmission versus in those who were managed with the standard UK care, 19% required readmission. There were certainly more adverse events in the ambulatory group, but thankfully none of them were life-threatening or serious. And so really what I take from this is that our, our care here in North America is very reasonable in having these patients go home. I'm sure they're happier to be home as well. Uh, but it does reinforce the need for, for timely follow-up and good return to ED instructions as well. All right. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about follow-up. Dr. Tahiri, for the patient who is going home, which of them should be followed up by a thoracic surgeon rather than returning to the ED for repeat chest x-rays until re-expansion re occurs? In other words, which patients with spontaneous pneumothorax are potential candidates for surgery beyond chest tube placement? Indication for a patient going a VATS, belectomy plus pleurodesis for a spontaneous pneumothorax is 
patient, like we said earlier, with the complete pneumothorax slash tension pneumothorax, patient who have an hemonomothorax, which is usually created by a, a band that tripped during the pneumothorax process, patient who had a prolonged air leak, so the patient has an air leak for more than five days, patient whose lung is not re-expanding, patient who has an occupational hazard, uh, so meaning a pilot or a astronaut, but that would be a discussion with the patient. And uh, finally, patient who has uh, who live far away from uh, medical facilities, which is also after a discussion with the patient. Those are the patients with who we usually have a discussion for uh, undergoing uh, surgery after a first episode of, uh, of primary spontaneous pneumothorax. So that's a great list for us to know about in terms of primary spontaneous pneumothorax and when we need to call you in the middle of the night. What about for reoccurrences of spontaneous pneumothorax? Which of those patients need a thoracic surgeon? So usually we said after a second episode of a ipsilateral recurrence or a contralateral recurrence, we offer a, an indication for surgery for those patients. That's the current guidelines. Okay, great. Let's move on to discharge instructions. So we'll have a sample patient handout sheet in the show notes that you can adopt for your ED. But Dr. Yehudef, can you just review for us what the key important discharge instructions are? So, you know, we, again, we'll have it in the show notes, but what are the kind of the key things that people might forget about or, you know, that are really important for the patient to know about? Yeah, so we kind of spoke about this already. It's important that patients don't lie on the side of the chest tube or they're careful not to have it be pulled out or dislodged. Ideally, you know, you tell patients, take a deep breath, cough 10 times an hour. You know, hopefully you tell them to do 10 times, they do it at least five times. This is just to ensure that their lung is, you know, maintained in, in re-expansion. And then just make sure that they have, like we said already, good follow-up. You want to have that repeat chest x-ray in at least 24 to 72 hours. And you want to make sure they have good return instructions. If they're short of breath, if they're feeling lightheaded, if they're dizzy, if they have an increase in pain, then absolutely they should return to the emergency department and send them home with analgesic as well. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that people who have a spontaneous pneumothorax who are smokers, if they quit smoking, it'll actually decrease their recurrence rate. Do you counsel people to quit smoking who have spontaneous pneumothoraces who've been smoking a pack a day? Yeah, so that's an excellent point. Smoking not only increases the risk of the first occurrence, but it's actually been shown that reducing smoking and certainly quitting smoking decreases the chance of recurrence. And that includes marijuana as well. We're not just talking about smoking tobacco. So absolutely, I do mention it to patients and I ask them to follow up with their GPs to discuss it further. Absolutely. And the, the literature would support that actually in the emergency department, when they have a smoking-related disease, that that's the most effective time to give them a bit of counseling. So yeah, I think that is definitely in our wheelhouse to do a bit of smoking cessation counseling when we're discharging these patients. Before we review the key take-home points, if you haven't heard already, the EM Cases Summit, November 11th to 13th, will bring you the brightest minds in emergency medicine across planet Earth together in the ultimate virtual conference. We'll bring you world-class EM speakers. You've heard just about all of them before on EM cases. They'll be giving 20-minute talks followed by short interviews and panel discussions with input from you, the audience. And we'll be sprinkling in short clinical rants, 
POCUS demos, ECG interpretation hits, and procedural demos, including one from Dr. Yehuda from Pigtail Catheter Placement Tips and Tricks. Tickets go on sale August 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. There'll be deep discounts for medical students, residents, paramedics, PAs, and RNs. We'll also have 100 spots for physicians from resource-challenged countries to join us for free. This will be a no-fluff conference, just pure clinical knowledge translation to improve your practice. I can't wait for the EMCases Summit. It's going to rock. Hope to see you there. Let's kind of just review all the key take-home points that we've talked about on the podcast. We'll leave you with the last question of the future of, of pneumothorax management. So first of all, management is all based on the chest x-ray. So every patient needs a chest x-ray, even though POCUS is very accurate and has an important role in, in trauma and the really sick patients. Make sure to choose a definition of large pneumothorax, either from the American or the British or the Belgian guidelines, and then stick with it. I personally like the three centimeters from the apex one because it's simple. Uh, Some patients with large spontaneous pneumothoraces, like under 50 years old, normal vitals, only mildly symptomatic, not total collapse of the lung, they do not need a chest tube or needle aspiration. They can just get some oxygen and a repeat chest x-ray and and they can be home within about six hours with a repeat chest x-ray in 24 hours. Consider needle aspiration first as an alternative to a chest tube in patients with large symptomatic pneumothoraces in patients who really don't want a chest tube. There's pretty much no role for a large bore chest tube in stable spontaneous pneumothorax. If you're going to put in a chest tube, use a small bore pigtail catheter with a Heimlich valve. Don't forget to check for air leak with the simple dunking of the Heimlich valve in the cup of water trick and getting the patient to cough before pulling the tube. Know when to use suction, who can be safely discharged home, and who needs to see a thoracic surgeon. And finally, consider getting together with your ED group and coming up with your own management algorithm that suits your practice environment. It'll probably prevent a lot of confusion, be better for patient care, and improve resource utilization. So one last question before we go, what do you think the future of pneumothorax management holds in say the next five or 10 or 15 years? Dr. Yehudaf? I think that this conservative approach is hopefully going to take off. I think we're starting to see the beginning of evidence uh, proving that this is probably better for patient care and for patient-oriented outcomes. And hopefully more studies come out to support this and show that we, we are trending in the right direction. I wonder if lung ultrasound will replace chest x-ray, but I'm not convinced yet. Um, but I definitely think there's uh, an interesting an interesting thing to look at there. And Dr. Tahiri, the future of pneumothorax management? Uh, one thing that I have a personal interest in is uh, using less and less chest x-ray. I hope uh, that in the future, we'll be able to be comfortable enough with a 24 to 72 hour chest x-ray showing increasing slash stability as uh, as an endpoint for the patient follow-up, as it, it can potentially save cost and um, save another appointment to the patient, hopefully. All right. Well, thanks to you both so much for helping us clear up all the controversies about pneumothorax management. I'm certainly going to feel much more confident next time I look at a chest x-ray with a big black space where that lung used to be. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I'm going to go get a nice big bowl of coffee now. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was great. Mm-hmm.